Welcome to episode 84 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Lloyd Glasspole, a British doubles player currently ranked about 150 in the world ATP and has been as high as 282 on the singles side. Lloyd is a player that I've been fortunate enough to coach on a couple of occasions from age 11 through to 18. And then again, as he started his professional career after college, Lloyd's always been a man of few words. So to be able to have the opportunity to see how he's matured, seeing how he's grown, and also understand what's been going on behind that silence over the last 20 years was, was a fantastic experience. They often say those that have less to say actually have more to say when they do say it and that's certainly the case with this podcast i think it's another cracker i'm sure you're going to enjoy it wherever you are sit back relax take it all in i'm going to pass you over to lloyd glasspole so lloyd glasspole a big welcome to control the controllables how are you doing young man yeah all good just here in portugal at the minute so a little bit of time free time Jump on the podcast. And semi-finals day today in Portugal. You you seem like you've had a good last few weeks. Yeah, uh, lots of matches heading in the right direction, which is always good. Uh, yeah, evening match, uh, they like to do it in Portugal. So a lot of hanging around. So to the listeners, Lloyd Glasspool, he had a career high of 282 ATP singles is currently starting to focus on the doubles and is already up to 150 in the world. Um, lots of you will know him, even though we won't get into the subject. He was, he was, he was in the, the Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie relationship of tennis, but we won't go there today, Lloyd. He's also an NCAA doubles champion in 2015 with Soren Hess Olsen. And... I think a lot of you would have seen him on the screens uh, in the Battle of the Brits a, a few weeks ago where, and I, and I want to start there before we get into your early years, Lloyd, because as someone who's known you for a long time, it was really, it really felt you kind of came of age a little bit during that event and partner and Andy. How was that experience? Uh, I mean, it was amazing. Obviously, it was pretty good to start with Emma first, someone I'm pretty comfortable with who also he obviously has a really high level and then kind of built my way in playing with Jamie I think I played with Jamie first or yep. can't remember which order and then obviously playing with Andy is pretty nerve-wracking but just to be next to that level and those type of returns are pretty eye-opening and how did you handle that I guess from a from a mental point of view you know, going on the court, I suppose, expectations up. The, the TV camera is something you may be not used to so much. It seemed like you really rose to that occasion. Yeah, I think just purely because I'd played so much around that time and the fact I was playing pretty well anyway, that it just it just kind of happened. I didn't need to think too much. Uh, and Andy and Jamie, I've kind of practised a lot with Jamie. He's helped me out, so it wasn't too uncomfortable out there because I know them fairly well. Uh, but yeah, Andy's great on court, really encouraging. Never like be pissed if you miss a shot or anything, so it's all good. It just probably showcases as well the importance of timing 
you know, when you're confident, you know, like uh, all tennis players go through kind of ebbs and flows of confidence. But if your confidence is at a high going into certain events or more high profile events, obviously it puts you, like you say, in a, in a completely different place. Yeah, sure. And I think that's all, I guess, part of scheduling to kind of schedule high-low before a big tournament in order to get that confidence. As I know you've listened to a few of the podcasts, to give to give the listeners, I suppose, the, the context, you know, it's what does 282 in the world mean? What does 150 in the world doubles mean? Can you go back to how you started your tennis life and I guess sporting life really as well? I think I picked up a racket at the age of, six seven around there just at like the local council place billsley uh, you probably remember billsley well and well. yeah i just played a lot of mixture of sport football rugby gymnastics i kind of did everything swimming until probably 14 13 ish and then it was just football and tennis and then yeah i mean i just kept it fun my I was still in school full time till 18, until I went to university. Uh, yeah, I just had kind of my parents had a bigger picture outlook on the sport. And if I was good at it and enjoyed it, then it's an option after I get all my education, just kind of keeping all the doors open. And you mentioned your parents, your mum was a, 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 a national hockey player for Wales, I believe, and your dad was the number one player on the third team at Everton Archery as well, I believe. Is that right? Not sure he was number one. I think he was captain, but I'm not sure you can say he's number one. He might have been two or three on the third team, that is. So, so yeah, my mum played for Wales. So that sporting prowess from your parents, that set you on the right, the right track as well, I guess. Yeah, exactly. They had a lot to do with the sport and being into sport, so that helped. And again, for the listeners, my, myself and Lloyd go back a long way. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly which which year it was, but I was I was Lloyd's coach for a few years uh, in the junior ranks. Is someone that then always stayed in touch with and also coached coach in the professional ranks as well. So there's there's lots of inside scoop I've got on him. Um, but one, I'll, I'll start off slow, Lloyd, before I get to some of the juicier stuff. But gymnastics you, you you touched on it i i use you as an example actually to, to to lots of people because my memory and i have to give a big shout out to claire williamson at this point who did such an amazing job with you as a, as a youngin but gymnastics seemed to be quite a big part of what you did when you were younger and i always think that's such a fantastic sport for for learning so many skills core strength the ability to balance agility you know, how, how much did you do as in, in your younger years? I think a lot. I actually did a lot. I was going to a lot of competitions. I think we won the school national championships multiple times. So, you know, it's from a very young age, multiple times a week. Uh, and I just think it helped massively with the body and movement. Uh, yeah, like a really good foundation. And then what about Claire? How big of an influence was she on your on your tennis? Massive. Again, she had a pretty open mindset in the fact she wanted me to 
I remember Sherwood, I want you to hit every shot in the book by the age of 14, I think it was. Whether it was, I don't know, whatever it was, kick serves, slice serves, like every variation. And a lot of kind of outside of the box stuff in terms of movement and and her energy as well. That was something I think I needed at that age because I was always pretty in my shell and she did a good job of kind of changing that bit. And I suppose that would, I know there's a lot of coaches listening to these podcasts, but that would be, I've always said it, if I was going to bring in any coach to work with players under the age of 12 and give them that first start, Claire would be my my first choice because of not only the energy she brings, but exactly that. I know when I started coaching you, it was amazing how many shots you did have in your locker and how many different tools. Now, you didn't always quite know when to use those tools, you know, but that, and that's something that obviously you can develop through time. But I think there's a, there's a massive learning there, you know, where maybe some coaches are trying to actually coach professional tennis players at the age of eight and nine, rather than actually give them a little bit of the, the, the like I say, the, the toolbox. Can you, can you give us any specifics of the sort of things that you used to do with Claire? I remember we used to start every single session. I was on the service line facing the back fence. She was right on top of the net, a ball in each hand. And then she would shout, go and throw one of them. And I would have to get to that ball in one bounce and hit like a drop shot that stayed in the service box. So if it rolled out the service box, didn't count. And it was just out of 10, see how many we could get every day. What do you, what, what do you think makes a good coach at that age? A long-term view on things. I think just building someone that teaching a player how to win at that age isn't necessarily the best thing. Yep. But as you say, giving them every tool and then just making them enjoy it, I think bringing that energy and making it fun. And something I've always wanted to ask you, Lloyd, because I coached, I think it was about age 11, age 11 or 12 to age 17 before I moved to Spain. And you've before you al- left me, you're out. <laughs> you've already, you've already said more words to me on this podcast than you, than you, than you said to me in those five years. You know, I remember having a, having a conversation with your mom and I said, I, I, I think he hates me. Honestly, I think he hates me. He never it's like, honestly, Dan, he doesn't, he really likes you, really admires you. He just, it's just the way he is. So what was going through your head during those five years? Like, where were you at? I don't know. I think I was just young. I remember Matt Thomas. I used to work with Matt Thomas a little bit and he used to get us to say, good morning. How are you? the very first thing as soon as you see him. And if you didn't say it, you couldn't play. And some days I just wouldn't play in 15 minutes because I just couldn't bring myself to say it. I don't know. I was just young and I guess not confident in myself. But you say you were just young. That was, again, to fast forward a few years, we went, I remember in Greece when we were on a trip with the academy, I was like, where's Lloyd? At, at At dinner time one night, and you just walked off to your room and you hadn't said goodnight or goodbye to anyone either. So what's going on? You, you seem to struggle with the start of the day and the end of the day, having that communication. <laughs> I don't know. It's something that bro says, well, I just refuse to say goodbye. Uh, I don't know. I just find it awkward. It's an awkward process. It's kind of forced, I think. So, yeah, it's just not me. So there we are, ladies and gentlemen, Lloyd Glasspool.
um, trying to justify not, not not being polite. And what what are your memories of, I suppose, those quite formative years as well between 12 and 18 before you went to college? What what are your memories of, the, of your tennis journey then? It was all pretty fun, honestly. My from the age of 12 to 18, it was either, I don't there was a load of good players based around Birmingham. That's what I remember. That's the difference from then and today. Like if I wanted to be a player today, I don't know where I'd train. But yeah, just a lot of good players, good group of people, good group of coaches. There was Solio Arden, Edgebass and Priory, something going on at Billsley. Just loads going on and really enjoyed it. Really fun and playing and lots of having fun through those ages. And I was never... I did travel and go to tournaments a lot, but it was never too serious for me, I guess, at those ages. And do you, I guess, is your view now that you're a bit older that you think it has become a bit more serious or is that just because you have a different lens now that you're more mature? Potentially a different lens, but also I think the journey I was on at that age was similar to everyone else around me at that age and the fact that they were all in school, they had plans to kind of go to university or whatever and I think people that play tennis potentially don't have those same views it's all kind of want to go professional straight after and and if that's your view then you do have to play more tournaments and I guess it is a bit more serious because you committed to making that decision earlier uh, can I challenge yeah. you on that I mean I, I know you're going to say you American college is way more of an option now yeah yeah I'd agree but I still think tennis players as a whole potentially drop out of school earlier. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I'd go with that. But I, I, I just think the reason I'm saying it, and obviously having lots of conversations with people, I think we can have quite short memories. And, you know, even if I look back and, and I was your coach at that time, we had a decision. Now, you can call it whatever funding you want to call it. But we were trying to get you on a matrix, I think it was at the time. And yeah. I remember we had the option of, for your age group of being top 10 in Europe under 16 or top 200 ITF under 18, something along those lines. Yeah. And, and one thing, and one of my reflections is I think it worked very well going the tennis Europe route for your for your development but actually i think if we're being brutally honest we were probably chasing the funding with that decision yeah for sure i mean obviously the funding helped me massively like i don't know what i would have done without it but yeah we definitely took that route because of the funding it would have been interesting to see our plans if that wasn't there or wasn't an option and on the funding, I guess it's a it's a topic. It's quite a hot topic. It's been a been quite a hot topic on the podcast. What is your view now that you've kind of gone through the juniors? You you've gone through the singles. You're now you're now being a doubles player. What's your view on how British tennis should do their funding? I personally think and this is just an opinion from a player that funding should be less centralised and I don't think you should have six players that are receiving 85,000 each a year and that's it and then not have anything else. I think the pot should be spread a bit more and you should just get more players playing 
but then I also think it should be a bit results based and almost internally funded where you just need to host way more tournaments in Britain and that way you cut down travel expenses you know hotels all that stuff you can probably take a coach with you because they potentially can drive every day and you're probably making profit as if you make quarters semi-finals onwards even at futures and that way without actually funding a player you're funding a player I think the top ones you also do have to give extra help to and because they're the ones that can take off quickly. But I think it needs to be a bit more spread out and a bit less money given. It's kind of money earned through tournaments and bonus schemes, etc. From from what age? From what age would the focus, in your opinion, go to results? Because I guess if it's too early. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that was more that was all professional, like adult. Uh, juniors, I'm not really sure. I guess maybe last year under 18s or first year. Yeah, I just don't think you can have too much emphasis on needing to win uh, too early. I think yeah. you still got to be able to develop your game, especially the way men's tennis is going. But I'm just so uneducated in that area of junior tennis that I don't know too much. And do you as players within British tennis, do you guys have a voice? Is that is that an opinion that's ever sought after? I know we definitely have an opinion and we have the group chat that, you know, Evo's obviously pretty vocal. Jamie Murray's got his views, which they all make sense to me. They're all... I think players should be brought into it more and kind of uh, collaborate with the people making the decisions. For me, that would make sense because we've kind of been there, we've made our own mistakes, we've seen what works and doesn't work. Why wouldn't you bring them in to use them, to pick their brains, to help you make the decision? And I don't know if they do that. I don't think they do that. They might have the odd conversation, but as far as I'm aware, not as much. So you mentioned a group chat. I don't know anything about that, and I'm sure the listeners don't know anything about that. So what explain explain the group chat? Who's who's in that group chat and what the purpose of that group chat is? Well, it was just built to give information on Battle of the Brits. Yeah. And from Jamie Murray. And it's I guess Jamie, Andy. It was just basically the top eight singles guys on ranking or top ten. And then the top eight dubs guys or something like that. And the purpose of it was strictly just for information. Yep. And then it just, once the tournaments are over, and even during the tournaments, it just turned into senseless banter. And I mean, there was a lot of good stuff on their inputs, you know, helping each other out, watching each other's matches, support. I had to leave the group. I'm no longer in it. It was, it was a lot. It was going off all day, every day. Uh, but yeah, it was fun and also actually pretty good if you used it for the right things. Okay, so it's not actually something official that's that's been represented, player representation at British Tennis? Uh, not that one specifically, no. Because I guess, I guess that would be, for me, something like that, a bit like the ATP Council, you know, those things. But I think for something like that to truly work, 
there's got to be representation at all levels. So it can't just be the top guys. They also have to have representation from people playing a little bit lower down, I would imagine, you know, representation from juniors that are coming through so that the total picture. But on, on that, Lloyd, it's actually something I'd like to get into, actually, that WhatsApp, I can't believe that we're talking for 10 minutes about WhatsApp. However, <clears throat> I actually do think WhatsApp is quite in or WhatsApp or different ways of communication in, in the modern world is quite influential to one, the success of players. I think you can really help them, you know, whether it's watching on live stream or letting a player know that you are, you're there, you're following them, you're in touch. You know, I think it's quite impactful, but I think it can also have a massive negative impact and, in my opinion, I, I, I think I've seen it have a negative impact on you a couple of times where where maybe what what is deemed as banter maybe gets inside a player's head a little bit. Would you would you say that's a fair comment for yourself? Yeah, I mean I've definitely had times where I've let the banter kind of affect me and I thought, you know, it doesn't bother me, whatever. But then I kind of get into a little bit of a bad place from it. Uh, yeah, it just, again, depends how you use it. It's not, it can be a great tool, but I think you've got to be careful with it and not spend all your time on it. But I also think I'm bad with it. I kind of, kind of look for it and bring it on myself, which probably doesn't help either. You try to be one of the lads when sometimes you're maybe not quite as laddy as that. What do you reckon? I'm not sure I'm trying. Uh, nah, I know what you mean, though. That's what I mean. I asked for it. I kind of put out comments that I don't need to put out. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, again, and if you don't mind be, me sharing a story, and this is certainly it's this is certainly not a, a dig at anybody involved in this story, but I think it's a good message for players and for, for coaches. It's just how impactful. I remember you were playing a 25K in Canada, and you lost a tight match to Kozlov in the final. And you'd had a great week. I think you'd beaten Christian Harrison maybe in the semi-finals. You know, you were playing Felix. like... What's that? Felix in the semis. Oh, was ah, so it was Felix semis. Christian Harrison first round maybe even. The week before, yeah, but same oh. trip. So you were, you were you having some proper wins. You know, you were beating yeah. proper, proper players. And, you know, I was following, I was your coach at the time. I was following and we were in touch every day. You then travelled, obviously, after the final, you travelled and had to play Ed Corey the next day. And, you know, in a very, you know, obviously very difficult. But same again, day. The same day, okay. Yeah. You're selling me short here, Kano. The same day. So you played your final. You travelled three, four hours? No, no, hour and a half. Okay, so I'm see, I'm I'm trying to make up for the for the time that I made up before. <laughs> you, you lost you lost a close match. Didn't perform badly. Spoke pretty well after the match. Twenty four hours later, you text me and you said, "I'm rubbish. I need to change my forehand." And I was like, "Where's this come from? What what what's going on here?" You hit with Evo for an hour. Yeah. And Evo had made, as he would, a bit of banter. You know, what you're doing, you got no chance in the forehand exchange with me. You know, your forehand did it. And that was it. That was it. And, like, you'd come off the back of 
an unbelievable three, four months. Like, and, and one thing I think the listeners also need to understand about Lloyd Glassport, he went from zero to 282 in 12 months. You know, you were, you were firing, but one comment from another player and you're talking about changing your whole game and technique and you're rubbish. So what would your advice be to a player that is having some of those, some of those thoughts or is, we'll see it all the time in academies or clubs. Somebody makes a comment, maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a parent. How, how do, how should a player deal with that? I mean, it's tough because you've got to try and just have that self-confidence and have the things you believe in and the people you believe in, keep that circle around you very small of who you trust and whose opinion you actually value. But as I said, it's, you can't just, develop that self-confidence overnight that takes years uh, and that's all part of maturing so yeah I think it's just learning who to listen to and whose opinion you value like who's truly there for you which for me Evo kind of is one of those guys it's an opinion I do listen to right. he's just maybe a bit cutthroat the way he delivers it sometimes and I also have to stress I think Dan Evans has also had a massive positive effect on your on your career as well yeah, he's always looking out for me and trying to tell me the best advice, even if it's in the form of some abuse sometimes. And how have you worked on the mental skills? So we talk about working on the physical skills. We talk about working on developing Claire Williamson, developing hand skills. But I guess the mental skills to be able to have that toughness when you're on court you're always going to be dealing with difficulties in this tennis world. We know the brutality of the sport. Is that an area that you've specifically worked on over the years? No, not at all. Don't think I've done anything. And do you think you should have? <laughs> <laughs> Potentially, but I don't know how you would work on it. I don't, I don't believe in sports psychologists. I could never buy into it. You don't believe in sports psychologists? Give me more. Just from my experience, I think it's all been pretty vague, kind of not specific, like take deep breaths, bounce the ball more, take your time. It's just stuff that I already know anyway. Uh, for me, I think if you've got kind of a bit deeper issues, that then it can help with it. But if you're someone pretty normal who just needs, I don't really know, like stress relievers, I think it's pretty easy to work that out for yourself. And I mean, I think I did find the answer, like Greece, for example, my first Futures win, my first trip with you, was it? I kind of found the answer there. Uh, yeah, for me, I just kind of find out for myself. They're not for me. If you didn't go to the gym yeah, and didn't work on, I know that you're a big fan looking at your Instagram, um, looking at your Instagram, you're a big fan. You're a big fan of your body. Um, now, if you didn't go to the gym, would you get physically stronger if you didn't work on it? So why, why is, why is, why is the mental side any different to the physical side? I guess it isn't, but I've just never been open to, or I've never had someone show me, like showed me the gym, you know, the mental gym. Yeah. I wouldn't know where to improve that side. Okay, I think we need a conversation off air, Lloyd. Because it's... I mean, I think the moment's passed now anyway, so... 
No, it hasn't. You're, you're age 27, you're 150 in the world in doubles. You absolutely have the ability to be a top 20 doubles player in the world. And, and this, this area, this area could be the difference between you being 15 in the world and the difference between you being 120 in the world or, or 100 in the world. We'll, we'll pick this up off air. I'm sure, I'm sure this little section, because, and, and I don't want to completely let go of it, because I guess the big thing for me here is the first thing someone would need to do with you is get you into a place where you're open and potentially committed to it. But yeah. it's, it's just, just, just small little things where every single day, as, as with any other skill, just by chipping away and working at it, there's big, there's big strides can be made. Do you think? Do you think your your view on that is similar to to a lot of tennis players? Do you think there is tennis players that are working on that side of the game? No, I think there is for sure, and I know people that are. Uh, I think that's just my personal mindset with a lot of things. Is kind of you just work hard, push through it, kind of put bad stuff to one side, and yeah, you just push through it. Don't speak about it. Do it. It's pretty old school, and like probably not the healthiest, but that's just <laughs> that's just mine. That's, uh, well, I appreciate your honesty on it. That's for sure. And in terms of just to go back a, a few years, I know we've jumped into your professional life a little bit. College tennis was that was that always in the plan for you? I think ever since meeting you, probably. Yeah, I mean, before that, I was too young to know what I was going to do, but. Pretty much, it was definitely always an option, and I based my GCSEs around that, taking geography and Spanish, which were two things you needed to go to America. So I was always keeping that. And how was that process? Because my memory serves me correct, you you were looking at two or three universities, and there was a little bit of controversy in terms of where you ended up. Yeah, I mean. I actually left it pretty last minute. I did my first year of AS levels and then just decided I want to go. And doing it in four months, there's not too many options. Uh, LSU had one. I went and actually visit LSU. Really good, enjoyed it. I was ready to sign on the line right then and there. But then a couple influential people told me, no, no, you need to like, check out Austin first. We know people that have gone there, like it's amazing school, whatever, blah, blah. And yeah, I guess because I kind of told Austin I was going, I just committed. I didn't even visit. I just kind of, yeah, stuck to my word and went blindly. So you didn't actually, you didn't actually visit the University of Texas? No, didn't even go. And, and was that the right decision on reflection? Yeah. I mean, I personally think so. You never know what could have happened at the other one. But in terms of my experience, I wouldn't have changed my college experience for anything. The city's amazing, school, amazing teammates. Yeah, loved every second of it. From from day one, did you love every second? No, it took me, it definitely took me a little time to adjust. Uh, the culture out there is a lot different. You have to be team orientated. You can't be a individual on the team which I was I kind of thought I'm only here to give myself a good chance to be a professional I don't care about the team on the school first year 
and I also remember getting an ATP point thinking, oh, I can go anywhere now. Like, I'm going to college with an ATP point. And then you get there and you've got Blas Roller who got there ranking 350. You yeah. know, there's plenty of people, one ATP point, that's nothing out there. So I probably underestimated the level a bit as well. Yep. And yeah, the first year was hard, but got through it. So what would your advice be to any any juniors going out there for their for their first year, just in terms of management of expectation? Uh, I guess expect it to be a lot. Expect to have to work pretty hard your first year, just in terms of finding your feet. But the main thing is just be really open, use all the resources, get to know your team, and just really have fun with it. Enjoy the experience. Don't kind of take it for granted. Did you ever have too much fun? Yeah, there might have been a few occasions where I had too much fun, but it's all part of the learning process. That's what I call it. Because that's, that is, in all honesty, it's a serious, like, it's a serious thing that can happen to people is all of a sudden they're let loose in, in, a, in a college town. And obviously there's a lot of educational demands. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sporting demands. You, you're technically there on a, you're there on a scholarship. So you're kind of being paid. There's quite a lot of accountability. You know, you can see how it goes wrong for some players. Yeah. But I know some people are like scared to go and they're like, oh, I think I might enjoy the life too much. And the way I see that is, I mean, if that's who you are, don't, kind of stop yourself going because you don't think you'll be a tennis player like you don't have to be a professional tennis player if yeah. you do enjoy that life more than being a tennis player then go and live that life like you found out what you actually enjoy whereas if you can still go and enjoy that side and know you want to be a tennis player then then it probably is for you I'll tell you what you're dropping some beauties here like so so now sports psychology is a lot of rubbish don't touch it and now <laughs> Now he's encouraging people to be a professional party goer. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying don't hide from it because you think, oh, it's going to be too much and you're going to love it so much. Yeah, it's good advice, but, yeah. Yeah, you have to be able to do it and still come back to what you actually love. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I think the, the bigger picture one for me on that, it's the old cheesy saying, if it's about the journey, not the destination, but it, it is so true. You know, you have to, you have to enjoy whatever experience you're doing. Yeah. And come on, an NCAA champion, go yep. down in University of Texas history. Tell us about that experience. Uh, I mean, that's the one thing that's amazing is to be able to finish your college career winning your last ever match. For me, that was one of the best things and then the fact that it was in Waco one of our main rivals Baylor always helps but everyone could drive it's an hour away 45 minutes so all my kind of good friends out there teammates all came to watch the final and yeah just an amazing experience the next day not so much but that day amazing experience and what is that for, for those listening the NCAA champion it's like yeah whatever what's what's that but what let, let people know what it actually is and what it truly means to to people in America and college tennis yeah it's hard to kind of understand the value of it if you're not in America or American but it's basically just the championships of every single college in America division one I guess uh, just the top ones play at the end of the year and you have 
the kind of champion of them all and you get like a big ring from it and it's a pretty big deal especially in all the other sports but you didn't get a wild card at the US Open no I think you have to be American for that privilege even though I technically don't agree with that I guess but Okay, so again, for the listeners, the NCAA traditionally in college tennis, the winners of the NCAA championships, Division One, in the in the singles and doubles, get have got a wild card into the main draw of the main draw of U.S. Open, yeah. and and I know that actually Paul Jubb also received a wild card into the main draw of Wimbledon. Not just on the back of that, but but pretty close to that. Did you have any of those privileges when you came back to the UK? No, nothing. But I think I was, when I finished, people's eyes started to open a bit to what actually the level out there, because Cam Norrie came shortly after me. Yeah, you had a lot of good names coming out of college, English or non-English. Uh, and then people start to give it the recognition it served. I actually remember Dom Inglot reached out to me because I think he might have won it as well. And uh, he kind of reached out and said, hey, do you want to train for Davis Cup with me at Queen's? And that was a pretty cool uh, experience as well. Straight after college, winning the NCAAs and being able to train with the team yeah. at Davis Cup. So, yeah. Yeah, because that's when when you came out of college, I you pretty much started working with you straight away and you were on the you were on the I remember walking in and you were on the bottom courts of Felix store so it wasn't it wasn't exactly the, the straight straight into Wimbledon and you had to you had to make your way and I, and I guess one of the big things and one of the biggest bits of admiration I've got for you Lloyd I think the transition from college to pro is a difficult transition you know I think a lot of people find it very tricky whereas you absolutely smashed it out the park you know what on reflection why do you think that was such a good transition for you uh, I think I used the momentum pretty well I was very hungry and wanted it and I think I found the right team and the right base and actually the right mindset and mentality pretty quickly yep. which I think is hard to do I think you can come out of college and just start playing all over the place without any direction or team and yeah, it can get a bit messy. And that year, like I say, the zero to two, eight, two year, what are your memories of that? A lot of traveling, uh, a lot of winning matches actually, which is obviously a very good thing. A lot of the times you telling me, no, no, you need to travel to this week or stick out one more because uh, the areas weren't the nicest. I remember Tunisia yep. having to go in December, maybe. Yes, yep. You, yeah, and winning the first week was probably the worst thing to happen to me because I was <laughs> like, no, no, I've hit my target of top 500 in six months now and I'm done for the year. But, you know, having the team around me to make me do two more, uh yeah, again, very good year, very fun, great time at base, lots of working hard. Yeah, it was a good year. Yeah, and, and and I remember actually, I think it was I think you won in Tipton. I think you won a futures event in Tipton. And you came off court 
and your first words were, I've reached my target, what's the next one? You know, I remember there was there was an absolute laser focus in where you seem to be. And I guess going into goal setting, which is obviously such an important part of getting people to connect with their purpose. It seems to me, or, or I haven't worked with you for a, a, a long time, that you you like to have those outcome goals to to always try and get to, whereas they can scare some people, but it seemed to work for your mindset. Yeah, and I think first year out of college is a lot different because you can aim for those goals and you're not defending anything. Yes. I think for me, that was a bit of an issue, the adjustment to having to defend things, mm -hmm. defend points, sorry. Uh, and it's just a different mentality. It's a lot more stress-free you can just play and have fun uh, you're not overthinking anything as you said you're literally thinking of your target and you're you're chasing you're climbing all the time you're never thinking about backward steps which can creep into play when you're defending that's good so again just to clarify for the listeners a bit lloyd <clears throat> the way that the the atp wta rankings work 12 12 month rolling ranking so when you start on zero Every, every match for that first 12 months that you win, you basically see your ranking rise. And I certainly know as a coach, that's a nice feeling as well, that your players constantly rising, rising, rising. But once you get to the end of that 12-month cycle, every match that you're now playing, potentially you are defending points from the previous year. And I guess that's a, that's a big mindset that <clears throat> shift that happens with a lot of tennis players, you know, the whole defending. And I guess just us as human beings, when we feel that we're protecting something, it's a lot more difficult to perform unless we have the right mindset, which is maybe where the sports psychologist could come in. It's not about changing how somebody feels what we feel so if we talk about the defending points you'll still feel that okay oh god i've got i won that last week however it's having the ability to shift our attention to then commit to a certain action no matter how we feel and that's that for me is the true skill and i think so many tennis players get caught up in what they're thinking and feeling and don't quite have the ability to tolerate that and that's why I liken it to, to lifting weights in the gym. You know, as you get fitter in the gym, <clears throat> what you're doing is you're tolerating more weight or you're tolerating more pain as you're going out running or running up hills. And, and in my opinion, the, the, the mental training aspect or mental fitness aspect is, is the same. And I, and I would imagine without sports psychologists, you're doing that in your own way anyway. You know, speaking to you now, you, you definitely can tolerate a lot more. You can probably tolerate Evo's banter now, <laughs> whereas maybe four or five years ago, you couldn't tolerate it. I don't know if that yeah. makes sense to you, Lloyd. Yeah, yeah, of course. You're not going to give me any more, are you? <laughs> no, I just think another thing, I remember reading uh, the book "You Can't You Can't Hurt Me" or "Can't Hurt Me" by uh, David Goggins. Exactly, and he was talking about you have the calluses on your hand, and it's about uh, hardening your mind and creating those calluses of your mind. Every workout you do, and every time you push through it when it's hard. And I'm kind of into that mindset where that's how you train your mind. Every training session yeah. that you bust your ass and you don't want to train and you push through it and all these different things in life where you work through it that is making you stronger and these experiences will 
work on your mind and i guess that is the mental gym but absolutely it's just, so it's just different it's different techniques you know you you have been working on it it's just it's a it's a different technique from i guess the classic of sitting in a in a psychology office you know that's maybe something that 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 someone like yourself resists which i'm i'm completely with that as well so the big question i have zero to two eight two it was an exciting it was an exciting time why didn't you push on from there it's a good question uh i don't fully know the answer i mean injuries are a little bit to do with it my stomach muscle kind of kept going but i think i settled a bit at 282 i was kind of happy in my personal life and i'd maybe look to come home earlier or i just lost that tunnel vision that you said i had before and potentially didn't want to stay on trips that i I remember I was 280, my career high, and I still wasn't getting any challenger main draws. Do you remember in California? They were all pretty strong. And I never got that chance. And then finally, at the end of the year, there were a stretch of three or four challengers. And I think I was main draw for three of them. Had a little stomach muscle thing, and I had the option of not playing the first one. And it, there's a chance it'll be good for the next three. And there's a chance of indoor tennis, which I'm pretty good on or one of my favourite surfaces, and three main draws, which I've never had in my career before, or just call the season then and there. And, you know, I get Halloween at home and come back, I had a girlfriend at the time, see family, and that's the decision I made. Uh, just because I didn't want to be there for a week, not doing anything in America. Yeah, I just think at that specific time, I don't think you get many chances in your tennis career when you create that self-belief and confidence and those moments you really have to go for it. And I think at that moment, I kind of took my foot off the pedal a bit. And it's so tough to get that ball rolling again, especially when you are a bit injury prone. And yeah, that would be one of the big reasons for me. If I could do it again, I would have challenged that. So what would you have done different? <clears throat> I mean, I guess it's tough because that's me as a person. I do like my social life. I do have a really strong bond with my family and friends. That's one of the big things in my life that I enjoy. And it's not a bad thing, but I guess just maybe finding that balance a little bit more, trying to make them both work or knowing what's best for me. Maybe doing a three-week trip at the end of the year or two-week instead of four or yeah, I guess just knowing myself a bit better and knowing how to control that, manage it, work with it. Do you think you know yourself better now, four years on? Yeah, I do. And to an extent. But I also think now I will kind of give myself the minimum that I know I can definitely do. And then I'll add to that. Like, I'll, there's no way I'd be here if I actually scheduled being here. This uh, tournament in December for me is, I kind of was like, no, I won't play that. And then it comes around to it and I'm like, no, I'm ready to do it. Like, now I'm going to go forward with it. 
yeah, so I'd probably say I know myself a bit better now. And that's just classic lowering expectations because I think if we if we look at, I always think there's a big issue when ex, there's a big gap between expectation and reality. You know, yeah. so so if we take on too much of an expectation, it 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 will cause a lot of internal pain and, and and difficulty. So it sounds like you're using that technique of just you lower your expectations a little bit. Like I remember we used to do, okay, let's get a good forty five minutes today. You're a bit tired. Let's get forty five minutes. And I remember sometimes we'd be on court for three hours. <laughs> you know, by almost setting the bar a little bit lower and it, and it flows from there. So I think there's a really strong message in that, Lloyd. Yeah, for sure. And I mean like my partner came over he did 12 weeks in a row for america i did four and i was toast after the fourth one like i definitely needed the five days off to go home and before going to the next one uh, i mean everyone's different as you said it's just kind of being able to know yourself knowing what works and what is it that you find so hard about the travel i don't know i just feel like i'm always kind of missing out there's something going on back at home where or just I mean my whole life I've grown up kind of being on the outside of the circle because I've missed so many I don't know family gatherings or school trips or just anything I've never been as close to the groups as I'd want to be because my sport has always taken me away from that to share with the listeners a bit of an inside conversation and let's see, you haven't remembered much that I remember. You've got very selective um, remembering skills. But it was in a it was in a pub. But when I say a pub, not 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 for drinking purposes. We were staying at my parents' house to play the futures in Sunderland. Yeah, yeah with Pete Peter Bothwell, who was one of our guests. Uh, by the way, he's number three on the download list of the podcast. So you, you've got to be overtaking him, Lloyd. You can't have let Pete have that. And also Josh Ward-Hibbert, who also is one of our guests. And he's about 78 out of 82 on the download. So Josh needs to, to, to step it up. And we had the question, if your life could change for one year, you can do whatever you want for one year, but at the end of that year, you go back into living exactly the same life. Nothing's changed. What would you do? I'm going to say be a DJ or a promotion guy. Or what was the answer? I, th I think you said you would go to jail for a couple of months, which was a bit weird. But, but you to, to, to try it because you didn't know what that would be like. But the big thing and the big point I'm making, you said you would work a nine till five job back in Birmingham. Oh, no. You would work a nine till five job back in Birmingham and then go to the pub on a Friday night with the with the lads. So it's like that that's obviously been quite a big pull. So how how are you gonna how are you gonna go from one fifty in the world to to wherever your goals are? What is your goal? Same thing it was in singles to make a good living from tennis and I don't massively have a ranking goal at the minute. Obviously, I want to be playing the end of year Masters. You know, seeing Joe Salisbury do that, it's amazing. I would love to be doing that as well. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it has to be top 20, top 10. Do you look at all of the travel you do as a sacrifice? Yeah, for sure. 
could you reframe all of the travel that you're doing as an investment rather than a sacrifice? Yeah, and I do. Part of me does look at it that way. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it, essentially. If I didn't know I was building on something and this is for a purpose, then I wouldn't do it. So I do know it is an investment in some sort of way. Okay. And what else are you currently, to let the listeners know, what else are you currently investing your time into? Uh, I mean, I'm back at school. I'm taking an MBA out of Loughborough. So that is taking up a lot of my other time. And yeah, it's kind of just my tennis and my school at the minute. And how is building for the future? Very good. You see, he gives this whole kind of fixed mindset off. You know, I think it's part of the kind of coolness that he, he tries to play. But fair play to you. Do you know, let's not underplay that. You know, you're traveling the world as someone 150 in the world and you're only on your way up. You're now doing your MBA out of Loughborough. You know, that that you, you really are investing so much in your future life. How how you finding because you started that in September? How you finding yeah. the how you finding the combination? Uh, I mean, it's it is really tough because it's such, you know, it's all to do with business and everyone on my course is has been in big companies for however long. So they understand all the lingo and everything that's all the concepts and it's all brand new to me. So it is tough in terms of that, but. In terms of finding time and the workload, it's fine because, you know, when well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do it because I spent so much downtime traveling on a plane. There's, that's to America, that's eight hours you can be doing something. Yep. When you've finished your match or match days or training days, you're spending probably six hours in your hotel room. Yep. And I want to be doing something other than watching Netflix, getting myself in trouble on my phone, you know. Yep. I want to be doing something productive with my time. And I actually tried to start like a small business do something like that but it didn't you know really work so i thought this was the next best option so what have you been doing for the last four or five years have you not been running your own business the last four or five years yeah okay so, i mean i have been running my own business but i wanted i guess i just wanted to do something productive with my time i was bored of messing about doing nothing with my time and I wanted to do something productive, maybe make a second income because this level of tennis doesn't play pay great at the minute. Yeah. Saying tennis is hard to fall into the trap of, I'm not building anything here. I'm not progressing in life. You know, it's a lot of friends that work a nine to five and go to the pub on Friday that bought houses now. Whereas yeah. everyone thinks this life is glamorous, but I'm not near buying a house or, you know. Yeah. But I think the point I'm making, Lloyd, is, you know, as you're on this course and you talk about all these people that have been running their own businesses that are on this course, you know, how much of the work that you're doing on the MBA are you able to connect with what you've been doing running your own professional tennis business the last four or five years? I mean, that's one of the reasons I got on the course. You did need five years experience and technically... I do have that running my own business, you know, my tennis career is my own business. So that's the kind of angle I went and, you know, managing your team or whatever, but connecting it 
but what I have found is it's a lot about relationships and managing relationships and the dynamics of it that's actually a massive part in tennis which I probably didn't realize as much before being on the course so massively can relate to it in that and communication all those kind of factors probably like good, stuff I'm good really, really bad at good yeah. morning goodbye thank you <laughs> the stuff I'm really bad at is actually pretty important in tennis <laughs> and the other business stuff I probably enjoy more actually isn't very relatable but yeah I mean it's more for after tennis anyway but I can put a lot of it into my current business I tell you what, when it comes up to the the module around negotiation of contract, I tell you, you are you are going to be rocking that. Uh, you, you'll be able to pull out the contract that me and you have, and be able to say, "I did this guy over like an absolute dream. Look at this. I'm I'm the main man." You're going to be t- a star, top of the class. There you go. Um. In terms of, in terms of British tennis, yeah, you've obviously had had a had a look at that from all different lenses as a as a player growing up. You you've you've received funding, you've received help, you've you've been part of a centralized system, you've been part of a decentralized system. From your eyes, what state do you think British tennis is in currently? Right now, it's in a good state in terms of who we have at the top. You know, we've got four top 100 players currently, uh, loads of doubles guys. Then I think it gets interesting. You've got Jack Draper, really good up-and-comer. But, yeah, there's not too many guys after that, I don't think, that we have to step up and fill those voids at the minute. And who does that fall on? It's a good question. I mean, it has to fall on the LTA to some extent. Yep. You know, and that maybe kind of goes back to my point that when I was playing, I could have a really good programme in Birmingham with multiple different options, you know, with three different clubs all at high level in one city. And I know the same up north, but now people have to travel to London to train. It's hard to hard to be a tennis player at the minute, especially a young one, and have good programmes around. Or you can go to Spain, great option, great weather, great coaches out there. Do you want to be more specific which part of Spain? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a great one in Sota Grande, I heard. Hey, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I didn't push you to say it, but it's going to be, it'll become the start of our, it'll become the start of our podcast. Yeah, no, it's, it's a one, I don't want to push you too much on the British tennis one because it's, it's obviously you're, you're, you're in that right now. But I guess it's more, more again, we've talked a lot about it and I, and I just want to also mention We've had a lot of people reaching out that are working in the clubs back in the UK, you know, and I yeah. think this this podcast is quite naturally because of the guests we've had. We we do tend to talk a lot about professional tennis, about performance tennis, and and I guess certainly one of one of my big beliefs is that the the club system is so important in that ecosystem. You know, if we go back to Edge Bass and Priory in that time, you know. 
you were able to hit with my fat arse, Simon Dixon's skinny arse and, and Adam Wharf and, you know, guys that wanted to play because we were almost, we were part of the club, you know, we wanted to be able to play to a decent level to be able to then to play the club matches, you know, stay, stay to be able to do that as well. So it's, I think that, that is also worth a shout out. And I know you're, you're a very local boy and it's something that you see. Do you, do you have any opinion, any take, does your mind ever go to that side of the tennis ecosystem? Yeah, I think that's essentially the biggest problem in this is the whole culture of tennis in the UK. I mean, it's so tough to compare it to Germany, Italy, you know, where you just train out of a club and you have all the club matches and there's so much money in it, you can't just jump straight to that. But I think you can start building that culture and if you have the good players training at those local clubs, then tennis or professional tennis suddenly becomes more relatable. Yep. And you've got fans that kind of interact and get to know you, just normal club members. And then you've got the little kids that actually, maybe they're two courts down the way. You know, I used to have Dan Evans hitting on the court, Nathan Rooney when he was playing professional. You know, even guys that are ranked a thousand, they're still training at my local club and I would always look up to them. I, there's probably five, ten of those guys around. And now I don't think the little guys or the younger young kids have that to look up to anymore. Everyone's at the NTC or wherever. You don't just look two courts down. You've got some really good tennis going on and people come to the club just to watch you train or, you know, Evo, me, used to play club matches, doubles league, whatever, for our local clubs and brings people down. A bit more buzz around the tennis, around the club and it just gets more people playing. Uh, but it's hard to just jump straight into that culture. That takes a lot of years to build. Hey, well articulated, man. You've you've developed some some skills over the years, starting to articulate these things. Yeah. It's been so good just jumping on and having a chat with you, Lloyd. My my last question before we go into the quick fire. I'm not going to ask you about the next two or three years because you're going to be a top twenty doubles player in the world. That's that's where you're heading. Yeah, start start believing it if you don't already. You're going to get your MBA. Yeah, so you're going to be in a position. Hopefully. You are. You're going to be in a position where you've achieved, you've achieved on the court, you've achieved off the court. So what are we going to see you doing in 15 years' time? Your tennis career's finished. You've got your MBA behind you. What's Lloyd Glasspool doing in 15 years? A great question. Uh, I hope to be playing tennis for another 10. And then, I don't know, it has to be something in business. I, me, I personally don't want to really go back into tennis or at least the coaching side of tennis. But I would love to either be high up in the business kind of managing sense of sporting organisation you know, my passion is tennis. So at the LTA being high up, the ones kind of making decisions that impact the professional tennis players or tennis players as a whole in the UK, I'd love, or any other big sporting organisations or potentially something completely different, like private equity. I have some good friends in that and that kind of career really interests me and suits my personality, I think. Great. Well, good luck with it all. 
Yeah, keep keep your head down, keep working hard, keep an up, keep having fun. And are you ready for our quick fire round? Ready. Add or juice? Add. Serve or return? Serve. Singles or doubles? Singles. Hollyoaks or Eastenders? Hollyoaks. Don't represent. <laughs> and that one, we haven't got into it. This has not been about Lloyd, Lloyd's brother, but just tell the listeners a little bit about your brother quickly. Uh, he's just an actor, was on Hollyoaks for the last five years or so. He's finished on it now. Uh, yeah, he's got a few projects up his sleeve, but yeah. Basically a better looking version of Lloyd. Okay, so um, college tennis or pro tennis? Pro tennis. Five sets or three sets at slams? Three sets. Wow. Your favourite quote? Favourite quote, my desire to achieve will be better than the problems I face. Were you prepared for that? No, I've got it tattooed down my body, so kind of got to stick with that one. Your favourite tournament? Wimbledon. The injury timeout or not? Uh, no. One rule not. change. One rule change in tennis. Um, no lets. And who should our next guest be? I mean, if you got Andy lined up, trying man. I've noticed you've got the uh, the Castor, the AMC on your top. Yeah. Du doubles partner. I mean, you you got a chance. What you you got the inside scoop here? I mean, I wouldn't be afraid to ask if I want to walk past him next. But yeah, I mean, I'd love to see Andy. I mean, everyone would. But if not, maybe a little Jody Burridge. I'm sure, she's got a lot to say, Mark. My housemate, yeah. Let's get let's get Jordy on. We'll keep working on Andy from all all ends that we can. Uh, but thanks a lot for your time. Great to it's great for me to see you from a from a ten year old who didn't speak to someone who has just had a conversation for over an hour with the conversation flowing. There was only two or three awkward moments. <laughs> rather than the usual awkward moment across every every conversation so well done mate good luck keep up the great work cheers getting up a big thank you to to lloyd for for coming on the show uh, for those interested he, he did go on to win that semi-final later that day in portugal he didn't quite get over the line in the final, but he finishes top 150 ATP at the end of the year in a, in a great place to push on in 2021. And we wish him all the very best with that. I guess my a couple of my takeaways from, from the, the pod and really interesting for me, knowing Lloyd at that age. And when I say he didn't talk, that's not an exaggeration. He really didn't talk. You know, he really was a shy kid and it was hard to really understand if he was enjoying his tennis. Whereas if you listen to him, a big takeaway for me is, again, a lot of guests have done this, talked about how much they've enjoyed the experience. And I would put that down to his first coach, Claire Williamson, who, who really did a fantastic job 
on laying a healthy understanding and, and healthy feeling on on the sport of tennis. You know, she worked incredibly hard on on improving his skills, but also how he views the sport. You know, he's never been completely obsessed with results. You know, he's been had a, had an understanding that there's a process and there's a way of doing it. And because of that, he's still playing tennis at 27, which is success in its own right. And to hear how much he enjoyed those years, he enjoyed the years, his teenage years as well, you know, not feeling like he was playing with a big pressure. I think that's a big success to the story. And I think there's a big learning, a big learning in that for everyone. Uh, my other takeaway, and I think is, is how everyone, everyone does have their own, own journeys and it's talked about, but is it really believed, you know, are we not globally just trying to clone a success story that we see happen? You know, we've seen over the years, Belgium did well. So then the LTA brought the people in from Belgium. Canada did well, brought in the guy from Canada. You know, are we not having to, or should we not be looking at this as every individual has their own pathway, their own way through. And and if we take Lloyd against someone who traditionally has been quite fixed mindset, and I think that came out with the sports psychology, but he's done it in his own way, in his own time. And, and I think the example towards the end of the podcast that he's now taken his MBA, um, he's studying hard, he's going to come away with a master's degree, He's, he's going to be in a position and I strongly believe he will be a, a, a top doubles player. And then he's got that NBA behind him. He's going to be in a position where one, he's gained unbelievable experiences from the sport. But two, he's got a platform to really build his life upon. And, and, and yes, there's been difficult times for Lloyd, but he's found his way. And we need to be able to continue to encourage these individual ways of growing. And it's not a one size fits all. It's not the cookie cutter. That's not what the sport requires. And I think that's another big takeaway from me. So always interested to hear your guys' thoughts as well. Uh, it's been, again, a, a week full of people reaching out. So thank you for that. Uh, thank you for all the sharing that I'm seeing on social media. I'm starting to see the ratings and reviews really have been fantastic. So please keep keep those up. It does help podcasts, as I'm sure you hear on any podcast that you're on. And a big thank you from, from myself and all of the team. I'm Dan Keenan, and we are Control the Controllables.